Maybe it's um, too soon. Is the, is the mic working? Yeah. Maybe it's too soon for you to have started asking yourself this in any serious kind of a way. But it's a reasonable question that comes up consciously or not for most people at some point, which is, what do I want out of this retreat? What do I expect to get from this retreat? Put that way, it sounds rather bald and greedy. But um, I think if we let ourselves honestly begin to notice what ideas are working in the back of our mind, at some point you might begin to notice that. What what am I going to get out of this? Why am I here? You know, cut underneath all the high-sounding stuff that we say and get right to the really deep chase, and not, not in any kind of a critical way. But it's, as you know, I'm sure many of you have heard, it's often said, how the Buddha described that his teachings and following the path of awakening moves as if going against the stream, going upstream against society, right? And of course, that's rather obvious just in this form. Coming to an intensive retreat for a month is certainly a little bit counter to the external norms of society. And just in that way, of course, it can be rather difficult, rather challenging. And as I'm sure you all know, the form of the retreat itself, the simplicity, the sitting, the walking, the silence, the commitment to really show up for whatever's arising in our mind, in our body, like it or not, that can be really challenging. There's many, many moments when a retreat is rather uncomfortable, to say the least. And it's partly because it's going against our normal external habits. But I think even more deeply, when the Buddha talks about this practice, this path of awakening going against the stream, more important than the external stream of society. I mean, that's almost secondary. The stream that our practice of mindful attention, of loving presence without discriminating what we like and don't like, this practice actually goes against the stream of our deep-set habits of heart and mind and in many cases of our deeply held views and beliefs, the ones we don't know we're holding because it's just the way things are. So when I was talking about that kind of bald getting down to the nitty-gritty, what do I really want out of this? On that level where the answer of what I want will come from what we really deeply hold, believe to be true, without even knowing it, not what we wish, not some view in our intellectual head, but where we take refuge, where we really have confidence, what we trust. One of the reasons we begin a retreat with taking the three refuges in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, sure, it's a tradition, but it's also a way of reminding each of us in our own particular way. But for me, it gets deeper and deeper It's a way of reminding me that this whole path is about learning to, you could say, shift where I have confidence. The beginning and end of the path is wise understanding, right view, how what we really know to be true, accurate perception of ourselves, of the world around us. And as The Buddha describes it so clearly, you know, how we perceive, we perceive ourselves to be a solid, separate, eternal being. What we perceive, for example, leads to how we think about the world, leads to the beliefs we hold, what we trust. And those beliefs then form the ideas and perceptions that we carry forward into the world. And this path of practice, of awakening, At time to time, it's not comfortable because it's really taking us into a direct face-to-face examination of what we've believed to be the truth about ourselves and the world and discovering in a cellular moment-to-moment level that it just ain't so. This is not an intellectual pursuit. 
This is really a moment-to-moment lived experience. And mostly, the views we've taken for granted, they feel safe because we've taken for granted. And when we, our practice is really a stepping outside of our comfortable, although it doesn't work, it's still comfortable, uh, definition, description, idea of ourselves in the world. Stepping outside of that view and opening up to, not to another view, but to not knowing. Opening up to what if. Opening up to the willingness to be actively engaged and really present without needing to make a conclusion about every experience. Without needing every experience to reaffirm me. This is about me. This will make me better. This will whatever. So awareness practice is stepping outside of our comfort zone. Not only on the physical level. That's the easiest part. Although that's the one that we might consciously fight. That's the easiest part. But the deep held beliefs. I'll just give you an example. Not about practice, but about how our views of the world color how we understand what's happening. And just can we just have that potential of just not being so sure? It's a great place, this open, interested place of not knowing. It's alive. It's connected. Knowing, oh, that's what that's about. Wham, it all slams shut. So just this example, I, I used this last fall at, at uh, IMS, and it sparked a whole discussion with all the staff people because it, it got interesting. So last year I was in Burma in uh, January, and several of us were with a, a Sayadaw. We had raised some money, and we were going down to a village in the Delta, a couple of villages, and offering donas of food, which are very formal occasions where food is piled, you stand in a row, people come, you pass it out, and photos are always taken in all of these things. It's a very joyous occasion, but there's tons of photos, tons. So we got back to the monastery where we were staying, and one of the friends, uh, she's a... um, uh, and a, a Swiss woman who's a nun. She's been a nun in there for 17 or 18 years. So she speaks Burmese. She's really not part of the culture, but quite immersed in the culture. And you should know that in, in Burma, it's a largely Buddhist country. And so the culture really accepts the suttas and the way the Buddha described the world as the way it is, including all the different realms of existence, for example. That's just accepted. So she was putting her photos on the computer, on her computer, and quite some of them had on, on different of our skirts in different places when we were standing, these bright, perfectly round, bright circles of light. So she immediately, oh, look, these are the devas. Devas are celestial beings. She was absolutely sure, these are the devas. And she's telling the Sayadaw, oh, look at the devas, and he was laughing. Then another friend who is also with us, also a nun there, but her background is a scientist. She's been a very long-term scientist. And immediately she said, those aren't Davis. That's condensation on the lens and the camera, and that's what it is. You can tell. And she was sure. The other one was sure. I thought, well, who knows? I would never have thought Davis to begin with, but I don't know about condensation on the lens either. So we thought, okay, whatever. I'll look at my pictures when I get home in my computer. So different camera, different computer, different photos, but the same situations. And not as many, but some of the photos did have those perfectly round circles. I thought, well, that's interesting. Who knows, right? Could it just stay with the who knows? And so when I talked about this this fall, the staff all got going. Immediately, one guy who's the IT guy, computer guy, very right, goes, look at that. There's no way. It's obviously condensation. And then we saw another photo taken this summer of a teacher meeting we had in um, Gaia House in England. And there's one photo of three of the teachers sitting there, but one particular one, who's a monk, has this exact same round, bright thing right on his chest. And when he was asked about it, he said, oh, often pictures of me have that. So we showed Eric, the, the skeptic, this photo. He goes, well, you can see right there, there's a glass of water, and that's exactly what it is. It's just water reflecting, I mean, anyway. He was so sure. And then all these people started coming to me with these different photographs of different places with these really, I mean, it's really wild. 
someone brought me a photo that she had of, it was really a forest grove in Burma with people sitting there. It was dusk. And these round particular lights were all over up in the top. I swear, I just thought this has to be like a Natapindika in the Jeta Grove after he died. I mean, that's the first thing that could just really look like that. And then my friend, the scientist, nun, this winter, she came, not sheepishly, but she came with a photo that she had taken this in August in Tiruvannamalai, which is in um, Ramana Maharshi's ashram in southern India. And she spent a month there. And one night, the full moon night, uh, is, you know, it's a done thing. You just take a, a perambulate around that mountain, the holy mountain, Arunachala, which takes a few hours. And on the full moon night, in recent years, it's become a big thing for Indian disciples to do. They didn't used to. So they went out that night, and it was packed. So in India, a few people coming <laughs> to walk around the mountain. Two and a half million people. Two and a half million people show up to walk around this mountain on the full moon. It's complete, solid people, she said, the whole way around. You know, having a party, talking on their cell phones, people are selling. She said it was great atmosphere. So she went out and took pictures. There were not all these lights all over, and you know, like there weren't street lights. She showed me the picture. It is filled with these bright, perfect, like, deva lights. I mean, who knows? And she said to me, okay, who knows? You know, I'm putting down the moisture on the lens. I really don't know. So I'm just telling that to give a sense of how the, um, the beliefs that we automatically assume, that we don't even question, scientific, or the different realms of existence that we use to describe our world, those are going to be how we describe experience. Maybe that's correct, maybe it's not. It certainly can be useful. I'm not saying, you know, we go around not knowing what anything is. But can we, rather than having to land on an answer, be willing to cultivate, to recognize, to become familiar and comfortable with this active, engaged, open energy of heart and mind, of really being present, but who knows? Yeah, it looks like moisture on the lens, but who knows? This is really when we talk about the quality of mindfulness, the quality of awareness that we're cultivating, hopefully, in this retreat. This is what we're cultivating. We're not here to find an answer to your question. The answer is going to shut everything down. We have more answers than we need. We're here to cultivate that open connectedness that doesn't even need to go around the question, but ah, just this, just this, without needing to reference past or future and lines of experience, just this, really present, and who knows? It's an active, awake quality of energy, of heart, of mind, of attention. It's not stressful. It's not exhausting. It's engaging. It's enlivening. And it's not something that just meeting moment-to-moment experience that way, it doesn't wear us out. It doesn't frustrate us. It doesn't make a day of mindful presence seem endless and tormenting. Because it's just now. What's going to arise in the next moment? Who knows? You think it's going to be a certain kind of feeling of your breath? Well, who knows? But the more we think we know what we want, the more we'll get locked in struggle. But this isn't, for most of us, the natural habit of mind. Again, my scientist friend, I think she wouldn't mind if I said this, we talked about it, a botanist, she's a botanist. And we used to go walking, and as we're walking wherever, she's naming like every tree and every bird, and it used to drive me nuts, you know. And then as we talked about it, we realized it's not that she was showing off or something, but that was like her way of, of controlling the world, you know, knowing what's going on. You know, you name it, and you know it, and you can, you know, reference it. And everything's kind of safe and secure. Not knowing. There's not such a place to put your handholds on. That doesn't mean it's, we're not going to have the questions, what do I want from this retreat? 
or what is it that's going to bring me happiness and peace? Or what is happiness and peace? Nothing unusual or wrong with having those questions. It's when we think we have to get an answer that's going to stay the same without changing that we get lost. So what do I want from this retreat? The Dalai Lama says that the purpose of our spiritual practice is to, is to fulfill our desire for happiness, for peace. Nothing weird or wrong about wishing for happiness or peace. I mean, if we didn't, for sure, we wouldn't be doing this, unless you're really just masochistic. I guess that's always an option. We are all equal in wishing to be happy and to overcome our suffering. And I believe we all share the right to fulfill this aspiration. Sincere, appropriate motivation. The thing that, one of, as the Buddha said, one of the things that unites us all as human beings is our deep wish for happiness, for peace. It's normal. Nothing wrong with that. But where it runs into our unseen, unexamined assumptions about ourself, about life, about what happiness is, when we don't stop and really look what's actually bringing peace and happiness in a moment, what's actually contributing to confusion and suffering in a moment. To see it clearly, we have to learn how to look free from our assumptions. Otherwise, we're looking through the veil. We already think we know what makes us happy, and then through that veil, we keep trying to do the very thing without seeing it isn't working, right? I mean, we all know this, but this is so subtle, so subtle. So what do I expect from this retreat? Asking yourself that question honestly and seeing what surfaces. Do it quietly. You don't have to be embarrassed about it because really when I do this and let the the real thoughts come up, my Dhamma mind that could tell you everything that's, you know, right understanding is ashamed, you know, well, I just want pleasant feeling by God. You know, I just want to feel good. I want to float on clouds. I want to feel compassionate. I want the pain in my back to go away. I want to really impress everyone. You know, just to be really honest with yourself, not to shame yourself, not to be judgmental, but to see what the ideas are that are working in the back of our mind. Once we see them, We're not driven by them or fooled by them anymore. When we don't see them, we don't recognize them, that's the lens through which we're evaluating our experience. That's the lens that that drives striving. That's the lens that feeds disappointment. We're only disappointed when we're not getting what we expect, right? Which is always a good sign when you're disappointed because then you can stop and go, okay, great, there's some expectation here that isn't being met. What is it? Bring it up into the light. We don't have to be afraid of this stuff. So looking to see what are we placing our faith in? What are we placing our heart on? What are we consciously or unconsciously looking to to bring us happiness? And I find myself over and over and over, even though I know better, and on many levels I know better, and sometimes I completely know better, But then the next moment or the next year, I find that how often my attention or my sense of what will make me happy is outward directed. It comes to a certain state of mind or heart is what I'm going for. And when that state of peace or that state of happiness or just the state of, you know, not being in pain, we'll take that. Just the state of the back pain going away, that's good enough. You could call that a a mini nibbana, you know. That would be good enough, some state. Knowing all the while that every conditioned state dissolves, and really quickly. But there's still that, that view in the back of the mind that this external, internal state, or this object, or this situation, or this particular experience will change me forever. Experience is a big one. Do you find yourself waiting for some particular experience? If you have a cessation of experience, then you're finished, right? So just let that cessation experience come, and you can quit all this sitting and walking. 
You can quit experiencing greed and hatred. You've read about it. It'll come. It's all over, right? It's impossible. It's impossible. It's a, any experience that comes, goes. And when it's here, it's here. I mean, this is, seems so obvious it's stupid, but when it's gone, it's really gone. And so a level of insight is present when it's here, and when it's gone, it's gone. It's not something we can make a chart. I had this level of insight and walk around with it, you know, like a diploma, but it doesn't do any good. It doesn't do any good. It's just another thing we're holding on to. The suffering is the holding in the mind in this moment, right now, in this moment. And as long as we're subtly or not so subtly looking outward to things, to experience, to people, to states, to anything that comes and goes, we're lost in samsara. That is samsara. We're spinning in samsara. As long as we think we can get something and hold on to it, as long as we think there's a view, and I spent 20 years at least deep in thinking, I'm practicing to understand the truth of things. But on some level, I thought, once I get, I get some understanding, I, don't know, I never really thought it so obvious as I could write it down, you know, this is the truth of things, and then all my suffering would be over. But some sense of once I understand the truth of things, and that was the energy behind it, once I understand the truth of things, it'll all be okay. It'll explain everything. It'll explain samsara and why I keep suffering and why I keep going back into these same old habits that I've seen 10 million times. Has that happened to anybody? Yeah, once or twice, right? And you think, I really saw deeply through this, right? And you did, in that moment. But the moment doesn't last. And isn't it easy to feel completely discouraged after that? I really saw it. So how come I'm turning around and doing it again? And it's even worse, because not only am I doing it again, I know I'm doing it again. I know that I've seen through it. So it's twice as painful because I can add judgment for my stupidity on top of doing it anyway, and I can't stop, right? We have unreal expectations. So this practice isn't about getting rid of one view to take up another view, not even the Buddha's view. You know, he's, you know this, that he said, even his own teachings is to be used as a raft to get across the river. It's useful, it's helpful. When you get across the river, you don't take the raft and carry it on your shoulders for the rest of your life. So all views are useful, are helpful. And so even anything I'm saying now is intellectual information. If it's helpful, great. If it's not, let it go. But it's, nothing's anything that we can hold on to and say, this is the truth. So this practice isn't about putting down one view in order to take up another view. But it's about learning to recognize, to shift our trust from views and explanations and experience and steady state moments and sense of self. Change our trust to that willingness to just surrender wholeheartedly in one moment into the not knowing presence of awareness, of mindfulness. Just awareness of what's happening now. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, emotions. That's the basic range that we experience over and over and over. But over and over is already a concept because there's only just right now. Seeing happening now. Feeling happening now. Thinking happening now. Pain happening now. And our way of talking, our way of trying to teach meditation, our way of trying to teach anything is a sense of me doing. You know? So we talk about me being mindful of sensation. It's language. We have to use language. And the view we have is me doing things. right? But really what happens is sensation arises, awareness arises just like that. Hearing arises, the knowing of it arises just like that. We're not doing anything. We say we're showing up to be present for it, inclining the mind in that way. 
But what we're really cultivating is that open not knowing, that willingness to just meet with open-hearted attention whatever happens to be arising in this minute and notice it's going away. The next, the next, the next, over and over and over. We are so trained to look for things leading in a certain direction, for experience to confirm me, you know. Now my breaths are getting better. Now my sensations are getting more subtle. Now my thoughts are getting louder and more gross. So one is bad and one is good, these judgments. But it's not about what's happening. We're really cultivating is that moment-to-moment-to-moment-to-moment quality of open, curious, loving, you could say, attention. Really loving the awareness itself. And any object, any experience that's arising is the gateway to help us recognize awareness itself. So really, we don't believe this because of our deep views. It doesn't matter what's happening. The moments that we do know it doesn't matter, it's such a relief. When practice is a burden, when you're, you know, when you're schlumping through the day and you're just like, oh my God, you know, three and a half more hours until I can go to bed without hating myself. Those are tough days, you know. Look at why you're schlumping. It's probably unpleasant. We rarely schlump along like that when the experiences are all pleasant and the mental states are lovely and our body doesn't hurt. Then it's like, yes, you know, I'm one step away from bodhisattvahood. But when your body hurts, when you're feeling, you know, moody, when you're, you know, wishing you had uh, taken that vacation instead of coming here, when you thought you were doing good, but then it all crashed and that person next to you, that person, as James said, or somebody said, Howie said, and it all blends. Somebody said <laughs> that the other guy, Howie said James inspired him, right? Did you say that? Yeah, he, can, he doesn't even remember. But anyway, the guy that, was in, that, that you thought was not doing any good is suddenly really doing good. And you thought you were the inspiring person, but now you're the person really doing bad. And then you think, okay, I'm out of here. That's when you're slumping along, right? Because you're looking at, we're looking at experience as a confirmation of self, of good or bad, or getting somewhere. But in those moments, when there's just that open loving of awareness, of mindfulness, of just being present for its own sake, you're not schlumping along because it doesn't matter. The day's long, the day's short, it doesn't matter. Your back hurts or it doesn't. Sure, you have a preference. I'm not saying you don't have a preference to have your back not hurt. But it doesn't really matter. And this is a whole different angle from our, the way that we're trained, the way that we're so deeply ingrained to take all experiences. What does it mean about me? Really deep-set habits. I read a book about, um, it's called Nonviolence, a while ago. And one, just one really interesting thing the man who wrote it said that stuck with me. He was just talking about the word nonviolence and saying how, in English, nonviolence is really, the, the main word in that is violence, right? So the concept nonviolence is just a negation of violence. So when you hear that, violence is kind of like the norm. You know, and nonviolence is seen as something aberrant or something kind of weak or passive. So like in Hindi, it's the same, uh, uh, himsa, same thing, ah, negation of himsa. But he said, and this is what struck me, just thinking about how language really can reflect our views, but how it can also shift them. He said, just think if, what if the only word for war were non-peace? So whenever we're talking about a war, instead we're talking, oh, there's non-peace happening in Zimbabwe right now. There's non-peace starting to occur in Afghanistan. Just make a subtle shift in how we experience things, how we think about things. So one way how I think about, one way, there's many ways, but one way of thinking about our, our mindfulness practice, about our Uh, learning to have confidence in awareness rather than in things, in objects, experience, is a shift like this. So what if, what if, 
as Ajahn Amaro talks about, the natural peace and ease of mind and body. That is natural peace and ease. What if this natural peace and ease of heart, of mind, what if non-clinging of heart, of mind, is not some obscure state that we need to create over many hours, if not lifetimes, of intense struggle, but what if non-clinging heart and mind, natural peace and ease, is actually more normal, the norm, but we're just not used to recognizing it? What if the fear, the clinging, the aversion, the spinning all the world around the idea of me, 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 what if all the frustration, the internal sufferings and sense of separation that seem to us to create us, to encompass us, to be the cage that we have to break out of, that seem to hold us back from freedom. What if these are actually the aberration? But we just keep giving our attention, our energy, our trust, our refuge to the wrong place. I mean, think about it. If you really down and out in moments of intensity, you don't have time to think through what's the proper Dharma perspective, but you're, you're off center, you're not really balanced, and something difficult happens. What's the, you know, the place the mind goes in that moment for refuge? And it can be different places. I'm not saying there's only one. When I'm really balanced and something difficult happens, sometimes there's just a sense of, ah, oh, that too. And then I go, wow, that's nice. I can see that. And there's times when I'm really unbalanced or tired or stressed, traveling and about to miss my connection at the airport, and somebody's in my way. That's a real test for me, I have to say. And somebody does something slow and just aversion shoots out. Ah, okay. That was the refuge in the moment. That was the trust. You know, if I can be pushy enough, I'll get on that plane. Which, by the way, doesn't work. But just to see for ourselves... And what if our path isn't so much the moment to moment to moment, we've got to chip away the clinging, chip away the aversion, chip away, you know, make a little mark on the blackboard each time you've chipped it away. Try to hold on to, try to create some state of peace. But what if our, our path is much more to rediscover the natural peace and ease, to learn how to re-recognize, to have more confidence, to trust it more, no matter what's happening. And this is really something, when when we're looking at practice from this angle, it has a whole different feeling. It really becomes fun. It really becomes quite delightful, because there's nothing going on that we need to fight away. We wake up and we're filled with rage. Okay, rage is like this can actually meet rage with interested awareness. And that's the problem. Interested awareness. Rage is like this. When we meet rage with, oh my God, I'm so horrible, meet rage with rage, we're buying into it again, aren't we? So just all of you have, I know, many, many times in any day, on a retreat we have more chance to notice, but many times in any day, when the mind is not filled with greed, when the mind is not filled with aversion or self-hatred or judgment or fear, when the mind is not running that endless story of what about me. Okay, maybe there's not many, many moments, but there's some when the mind isn't running that story. And those moments we often tend not to notice because we're more tuned into what about me, good or bad. What about me is often a story of how bad I am, how useless I am but it's still all about me. But just notice those simple moments where, what is it the third Zen patriarch said, where nothing is missing, nothing is lacking, and nothing is in excess. And we're not relating anything back to me. Just this, you know, the just so moments. And it doesn't matter what's happening. In the middle of a sitting, there's just a moment of just breathing. And then later we go, oh, there was a moment, it was just the breath, the breath was just breathing itself, oh my God, it was, okay, that's not, that's not it anymore. (laughs) But the moment when, oh, there's just breathing, or hearing, just hearing, 
or thinking, but it's just really just thinking. Or having a cup of tea, and there's just heat. Or hearing a bird, or feeling the fog, or just standing. But there's awake, you're awake. This isn't like a moment when you're asleep in a coma. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's wakefulness, there's presence, but it's not filled with greed or aversion or any particular me story. It's just this. Notice those moments. You don't have to put a word on them. Any word is already too much. They're not like huge, oh my God, the neon lights go off, everything's different. And that's why we often don't notice them. We want the one big one to be done with it all. You know? And that's just more wanting. That's coming from the same place of me wanting something big to change me, so I'll be different. I'll still be me, but different and better. Can't think it through that way. The little moments of nothing special, but that exquisite presence. There's no me hanging around right then. Nothing to want, nothing missing. Your back hurts or it doesn't hurt. It doesn't really matter in that moment. Your knee hurts, you're cold, or there's a loud noise, or you wish it was bedtime. It doesn't really matter. Just little moments. Notice them. We really need to give them the, the attention, the energy, the sense of re-recognizing so that we can learn to really kind of shift where we have confidence, to shift where we put our trust. And I say when the chips are down. So that's, I think, a big part of our practice here. And the other part, of course, is what we spend a lot of time caught up in, recognizing the habits, the reactions from the belief systems that, that seem to hide from us this natural peace and ease. Basically, I mean, you know what the habits are, right? The deep belief that if something is pleasant, it's good. That's so deep. It's good. It's right. It's the way it's supposed to be. If something is unpleasant, an unpleasant sensation in the body, an unpleasant sound, an unpleasant thought about yourself, an unpleasant perception, you think someone's looking at you cross-eyed because you did something wrong, you feel bad. Unpleasant, it equals bad or wrong. Something wrong with me. The pleasant is to be gotten more of. The unpleasant is to be gotten rid of. And the neutral we don't even notice is to be overlooked. But even more in the, in the sense of the delusion is that sense of relating it all back to me. You know, The pleasant, it's pleasant, it's good because it fuels my feeling good about myself. It's good for me. The unpleasant is bad or wrong only in relation to some sense of me that has the deep-set idea that peace and happiness is associated with pleasant feeling. I'm not saying we aren't going to prefer pleasant feeling to unpleasant feeling, but really look deeply how much of our life choices are posited on this will get me more pleasant feeling how much of the way I even practice, I keep finding it over and over. I think I'm just being open and present, and then somewhere there's a little sense of struggle, and I look, and ever so subtly, I've started to try and steer things in the direction of pleasant. Oh, that's the way it's supposed to go. Do you ever have doubt about your practice when you're feeling good, when the experiences are smooth and pleasant and lights are going off? You come into the interview and we say, you're just caught up in the defilements of insight. You don't want to hear that. You think, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. When when you're caught and you're really seeing greed arising in a moment with every sense impression, and you come in and go, oh, my God, I'm hopeless. I'm just seeing craving in every moment. And we go, that's great. You're really seeing the truth of things. This is freeing to the heart and mind. You say, freeing? I don't think so. This isn't what I signed up for. I didn't come here to see greed and aversion arising in every moment. I came here to be peaceful, to feel good, to get into the jhanas, which keep greed and aversion away. And if we could stay in the jhanas from now until we die, that would be very nice. But we can't. And then greed and aversion come back. And so our job here is to, from the confidence in the that not knowing that 
open, loving quality of awareness that can just be with whatever. The confidence that that's accessible no matter what the experience is gives us the, the faith, the energy, the confidence to then meet even aversion, even clinging, even our self-judgment with this open-hearted mindfulness. Even like our deepest demons, and yes, we have to work with them in different ways. I'm not saying you just dive in and go for it. But even our deepest demons, we can meet with mindfulness. They can be part of our gateway to freedom. There's nothing, as one of my Burmese teachers said, there's nothing you need to be afraid of because there's nothing that mindfulness can't be with. There's nothing awareness can't be aware of. Nothing. When we place our trust more and more in awareness through our own experience, we start to know that. We start to have confidence in that. And the freedom of mind, of heart, from clinging just begins to naturally more and more show itself. We get a sense for what that means. It's not a state, a moment-to-moment activity. There's no state to reach. But as we trust that moment-to-moment activity of this loving, open, non-judging quality of mindfulness, the more we trust that, you'll come to see that even when you feel deeply spinning in some story, deeply spinning in some reactivity, somewhere more and more we know, just like that, just like that, this whole spinning mess, oh, it's like this, as Samedo says. We're aware of it. Not that it goes away, but that we shift our confidence from this is who I am and I have to do something to get rid of this and ah, this is unbearable, I can't stand it another moment. Oh, it's like this. Unbearable nature of pain is like this. It's still unbearable nature of pain, don't get me wrong, but the shift of interest, the shift of trust has moved from the me experiencing unbearable nature of pain and I've got to get out of it at any cost to oh, awareness of unbearable nature of pain is like this. It's like we really learn to love awareness, to trust it, to have confidence, to know that this is accessible. And awareness is really the doorway to freedom of heart and mind, to freedom from suffering, to freedom from causing suffering for others. So that's really the work of our meditation, to rediscover many, many moments, over and over and over, the natural peace and ease of mind and body. When the mind and heart isn't colored by wanting, when it isn't colored by hating, when it isn't colored by meing. And there's many moments of days of that. And from that place of trusting and confidence, then to explore the many moments when we feel really caught in reactivity, in fear, in wanting, in it's all about me. And it just feels so solid. It doesn't even feel solid. We just know this is how it is. Just know that. Sometimes it's only an intellectual remembering. Oh, yeah, I remember I was able to be aware of aversion. You know, and you can't quite bring it in. It's just intellectual. But sometimes just remembering that can really help. It was just a retreat I was just teaching last week in, in Burma. And a, a young woman came, and she was going through a huge difficulty uh, in, her, in her life, a huge ending of relationship, and so a lot of external suffering and confusion and questioning herself. And you can imagine coming on a retreat like that. So she was just, plus it was in Burma, she was just filled with aversion. She said she was aversion everywhere she turned. And it was just getting unbearable. She was on the floor of her kuti, her little cottage, just sobbing, she said. And then suddenly, she'd been practicing a while, other retreats, and suddenly she said, oh, right. This is just aversion. I mean, this sounds silly. She said, it was just aversion. She said, it was like, it was just like I was in this well of aversion, but it just didn't stick anymore. It wasn't a problem. I don't know if this makes sense. None of the situation changed. She, she saw all the aversion. She didn't like push it. She said, oh, right. This is aversion in the mind. Awareness of aversion. Aversion's like this. And in that moment, we're trusting in the mindfulness. We're trusting in the awareness again. And it's really 
it's not always possible. Sometimes we're too caught in the story, we're too caught in the belief in the aversion. It's too strong. Or the energy of the greed is stronger than the energy of awareness. Sure, plenty of times. That's what we're practicing for. But it's never lost. It's never hopeless. It's never further away than that. And this is what we learn to trust for ourselves. Me telling you doesn't make any difference. But learning to really know that for yourself. And the times when, like that young woman, when suddenly she said, oh, it's just aversion. Everywhere I look, but it's just aversion. And she was free. She felt so happy in that moment. And she was filled with aversion. It's not, that's not an aberration. That's possible. It happens for all of us sometimes, and it really fuels our trust. So we recognize and strengthen confidence in the natural purity of heart and mind by recognizing those moments when the heart and mind is pure and by recognizing what it's like when the heart and mind is colored by kalesa, by these distortions. They're suffering always, but it's not rocket science. One of my teachers makes it very simple to notice in our minds, and it's really, it's not rocket science. We get all twisted up. I said, in our practice here, if you're wanting something to happen, that's greed. It's not so hard to tell. You're trying to stop something from happening or you want something different to happen, that's aversion. That's hatred or fear. Do you not have a clue in life what's happening? Well, duh, that's delusion. But the other aspect of delusion is, are you relating everything that's happening as being me or mine? That's delusion. My knee, my aversion. Somebody's making a sound halfway across the room and it's bothering me. Just notice that. So that's, it's not rocket science. You're wanting something to happen? Greed. You want something to stop happening? You want something different? Aversion, hatred, or fear. You don't know what's happening or it's all me or mine? Delusion. The trick is recognizing those. This isn't a judgment. It's like, oh, great. I'm happy when I see aversion or dosa. I just I say dosa now because it's the poly word that covers aversion, hatred, fear, all of it, because it makes it really impersonal. So I might be being really subtle, and I'm noting and noticing and noticing all these things, and suddenly I realize, oh, I'm trying to push that away. And I, oh, that's dosa in the mind. In that moment, the mind isn't colored by dosa anymore. It's become aware. Oh, dosa is like this. The trust has gone into the mindfulness. Oh, wanting feels like this. We don't have to be afraid of wanting. We don't have to be afraid of pushing away of aversion. We don't have to be afraid of delusion. That's just adding dosa on top of delusion. All we have to do is trust awareness enough that we can recognize. And when awareness is being fed, when we're loving awareness in that moment, we're not loving the greed. We're not loving the aversion. When we're buying into it, it is aversion, and I am so bad. That's feeding the aversion. I am greedy. I am greedy, but that would really solve everything if I could only get it. This will be the last one. That's feeding the greed. Oh, this will be the last one, and you're watching. Yeah, just watch. Is that the last one? Go ahead and eat that. Does that end all greed? Funny, it didn't seem to do the job. That's awareness. Always available, always accessible, and not so difficult. So one of my teachers says, what's the difference between someone who practices mindfulness practice and someone who doesn't? He says, a practitioner meets every, or regards every object, every experience that arises with interest as a chance to learn. A non-practitioner reacts with greed, hatred, and confusion. And so really from this, every experience that comes is a chance to learn. We're not here to try and have better and better experience. Every moment is an opening into awareness, and every moment of awareness is a potential gateway to freedom in that moment. And there's only this moment. Past moment's over. Future isn't here. There's only this moment. The liberation arises. The purity of heart and mind arises not from what's happening, but in how we meet this moment. So even the most ugly, fearful, painful experience met with interest 
met without fear, that's a moment of cultivating non-clinging. The most beautiful, sublime, subtle experience met with, wow, now I'm really getting somewhere, is cultivating greed. Recognizing, oh, that's greed, is cultivating awareness again. It's just like that, just like that. We're never more lost than this. And there's nothing we need to be afraid of. Nothing. Byron Katie has a great line, loving what is. I like to think of awareness as being like that, our mindfulness practice. Just loving what is. And only when the heart and mind is clear in that way can we recognize accurately what is. And it's the accurate recognition of what's really going on in our mind and body moment to moment that really ultimately frees us from our wrong ideas, our inaccurate perceptions. As long as we perceive wrong, we're going to keep building the world in an inaccurate way. We can only perceive accurately in those moments when the chitta, the mind, the heart, is not looking through confusion. So recognize, trust in, have confidence in all those little moments of just this, just this. And no matter how much you seem caught in fear or confusion, knowing that just recognizing that is already a moment of potential freedom, of feeding the heart and mind of non-clinging, no matter what's happening. Everything, every moment here is, is the moment that can free our hearts and minds. There's no other moment. There's only this moment. So I'll just end with a, something from Ajahn Sumedho. Awareness is not about making value judgments about our thoughts or emotions or actions or speech. Awareness is about knowing these things fully, that they are what they are at this moment. So what I found very helpful was learning to be aware of conditions without judging them. In this way, the resultant karma of past actions and speech as it arises in the present is fully recognized without compounding it, without making it into a problem. It is what it is. What arises ceases. As we recognize that and allow things to cease according to their nature, the realization of cessation gives us an increasing amount of faith in the practice of non-attachment and letting go. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.